0: everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament. And today we are in Revelation 14, which brings the third cycle of visions to a close. Here, after having been revealed, the two other members of that counterfeit trinity, the beast and the false prophet, and their uh, allurement of the world after the beast, and their oppression of the saints, we see the saints in their picture of victory in the 144,000 We see the destruction that will come upon Babylon and the nations who have rejected the Lord. And then we close with the consummation, the coming of Jesus, and the final harvest where he separates the righteous and the wicked. So let's go ahead and open up looking at the Lamb and the 144,000 here in verses 1-5. through Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, as opposed to those, obviously, who had been the mark of the beast, right, those, those who had followed the beast. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound, sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sounds of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the one hundred and forty four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. these he has have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless throughout. John's gospel, Jesus often was referred to or used the image of the shepherd. And his call to people were to follow him. That's one of the most persistent commands he ever issues. Follow me. One might almost say that in the gospels, following Jesus is the basic phrase which describes someone who belongs to him, who believes in him, those who follow him. That's the nature of discipleship. But in John's gospel particularly, we find some poignant and striking passages on this theme. John 12, whoever serves me must follow me. Peter insists that he will follow Jesus absolutely anywhere, to prison or even death in John 13. But Jesus solemnly warns him that he will in fact deny that he even knows him. It is in that light that we read the immensely powerful passage in John 21 where Peter, after Jesus' resurrection, tells Jesus three times that he loves him. And Jesus' ultimate response is follow me. Even then, Peter has some questions. Lord, he says, looking at the beloved disciple, John himself, following them, wh- what about him? And Jesus' reply is one of the most famous one-liners in all the gospel, echoing through the hearts and minds of all who have struggled with vocation and wondered why things were working out the way they did. Jesus said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Don't ask silly questions. Just follow. Don't worry about the others. You just follow me. Don't look back. You just follow me. All that is in the background as we find in this definition of the Lamb's elite warriors, the sentence, they follow the lamb wherever he goes, verse 4. There is a sense in which nothing more needs to be said. The lamb has won the victory over the dragon and his sidekicks through his own sacrificial death. Now he calls his people to put that victory into practice by following him down the same path. Jesus had had stressed this during his public ministry, that if anyone wanted to come after him, they should deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Somehow, the way to victory is the way of the cross. It was strange and challenging then, and it's just as strange and challenging today. Who then are these elite warriors as I have called them? What purpose is there in them suddenly being revealed again at this point in the story? The answer is that John is once again working with Psalm 2. The nations rage, the people imagine foolish things, but God, God's answer is to set his king, his son, upon his holy heel. Hence the mention of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion in verse 1. We have seen the dragon becoming furious with the woman and her offspring. The younger, we've seen the two, the two monsters, the great imperial monster who comes from the sea and the local secondary monster, the false prophet who emerges to lead others to follow the beast. They are the ones who in Psalm 2 are raging and fuming, threatening and blaspheming. But now God is revealing his chosen king and his chosen king is not alone. He is surrounded by his troops, his elite warriors, and there is no doubt of their victory. It is because they are elite warriors that he speaks of them as celibate or virgins. In ancient Israel, there was a clear policy about who could go to war. And if war was justified, war was also meant to be holy. And those who fought it had to obey special rules of purity, including abstention from sexual relations. You see that in Deuteronomy 23 and 1 Samuel 21. As usual, we need to be clear about the symbol and the reality to which it points. In the symbol, this body consists of 144,000. We've already met them before back in chapter 7. They sing a new song and they've abstained from sacred relations. They are, in other words, the ideal representatives of the people of God, permanently ready for battle. In the reality to which this symbol points, they are in fact a great company which nobody could count. They ch- the chances are that they sing songs which all Christians would know, and some of them may be married and some single, but all are permanently ready for the real battle, which is the engagement with the monsters and their demands, an engagement which may mean at any moment that they will be required to suffer and even die. But these elite warriors served then to encourage the small Christian groups who faced with monstrous might of Rome and all of its supporters that sought to hurt them and harm them. Not, of a, bit of, not a bit of it, says John. The Lamb has been enthroned just as God promised. And His elite stand around Him ready for battle in which following the Lamb Himself, they will win the victory. For the Lamb will bring utter destruction upon the system itself which seeks to destroy and harm the people of the Lamb. And who blaspheme and reject Him for their love of the world. And we see that in the messages of these angels. Verse 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. To get the force of the symbols here, we have to think back to Babylon. Babylon, the capital of the great empire that swallowed up the remaining Israelite tribes in 597 BC, was the city that remained ever after in the Jewish memory as the paradigm of wickedness, of idolatry, immorality, and just sheer cruelty. Anyone who knows anything about the book of Revelation knows that Babylon is used as a symbol later in the book in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Now Babylon in Revelation, for the immediate context, would have been the Roman Empire. But ultimately, it was the symbolic picture of this wicked worldly system that is anti-Christ, that is anti-God, that seeks to build idols and to oppress the people of God. And when it comes to Revelation, especially within these messages of these Uh, Three Angels Regarding Babylon, John really leans heavily on two Old Testament prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah. So, the first with Isaiah, and the great central uh, section of Isaiah is Isaiah 40-55, through and it's addressed to the Israelites in exile who have almost given up on hope. Now, Babylon, where they've been taken in exile, seems so great and so powerful, but Babylon's gods would have appeared to seem that they have won man, where is Yahweh when it looks as if Babylon seems to be victorious? In poetry that has scarcely ever been equaled for its combination of power and tenderness, the way in which the prophet expounds the greatness of the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, he is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is not about to be worsted by the puny fake gods of Babylon. He will rescue his people, Isaiah says. He will reestablish the covenant and renew the whole creation. And he will do all this through the work of the servant, this interesting servant. Four sub-poems emerge from the flow of the prophecy. These poems highlight first the servant's mission to rescue Israel and bring justice to the world. Then, his hard and apparently unfruitful work, which will yet reveal Yahweh to the nations. Then, his readiness to hear Yahweh's voice and his consequent sufferings and patience. And finally, his shameful death, bearing the sins of the people, leading to his restoration and vindication. Around these poems are oracles of doom on Babylon. She has made her captives drink the cup of wrath to the dregs, but God will take it from them and give it to Babylon instead. The oppressors will fall victim to the wicked systems that they have devised. Evil will bring its own reward. It is in that context that by the way of introduction to the fourth servant poem, the prophet announces the arrival of a herald with good news. Just as John tells us that he has seen an angel carrying an eternal gospel, what is this good news? For many today, the Christian good news or gospel is a message about them. God loves them. God forgives them. God promises them a blessing in heaven. But without diminishing the personal meaning, most of the summaries of the good news in the Bible are much larger in scope. Paul summarizes the good news in terms of saving events of Jesus' scripture, fulfilling death and resurrection, or of Jesus' Davidic descent, his public recognition as the Son of God through the resurrection, and his universal lordship. For Isaiah, there are three elements immediately mentioned with, a, with, with further immediate conquest, and John seems to be aware of all of it. First, your God reigns. This message announced to the exiles in Babylon can mean only one thing. Yahweh has won the victory over Babylon, and you are now free to go home. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. God's people will be established. Second, your God is coming back. God had it, had seemed as if it had, to abandon His people, to abandon the temple in Jerusalem when the Babylonians closed to attack, like we see in Isaiah 52. But now He would return publicly, And visibly. Third, God is doing a powerful and public work of rescue. All the nations would see that Israel's God had saved his people from their plight. So Babylon fell, the exiles went back home, but nobody ever said that Yahweh had finally come back. But the early Christians believed, and they believed that Jesus believed that Yahweh had come back in and as Jesus Himself. They believed that His glory was fully and finally revealed when Jesus died on the cross as the innocent lamb. All this is vital as the complex scriptural background to Revelation 14. Jeremiah, which is also used here, seems to have spent most of his life in the terror and horror of the Babylonian invasion and its aftermath, and the sorrow of its exile. He has seen some appalling sights and experienced just how atrocious human behavior can be. And at the end of his book, he solemnly pronounces God's judgment on the wicked nations that have brought such terrible things to pass. He has oracles against Egypt, and Philist- the Philistines, Moab, the Ammonites, and Damascus. But then in chapter 50, he reaches Babylon. Two long chapters of sustained condemnation show where the book's emphasis lies. And perhaps only those who have lived for a generation under a desperately cruel and inhumane regime can ever begin to understand why those chapters need to be written. But perhaps those who think hard about the justice of God and about the urgent necessity that a good God should not turn a blind eye to injustice and oppression may glimpse part of the answer that they long for as well. At last, we can perhaps begin to understand also while Revelation 14 says what it does. This is the gospel. The good news for those who live under Babylonians' monstrous rule. First, God creator is at last going to sort, of sort everything out. Second, Babylon is fallen after all her efforts to make the nations drunk with their own immoral wine. And third, God's judgment will be just, thorough, and complete upon Babylon. And that will come when he returns to bring about the great harvest. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on, cloud, seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And the head and a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, "Put in your sickle and reap the out au- for the hour is to come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe." So he who sat on the earth or he, so he who sat on the cloud fully swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and, ga- and they gathered it into the grape harvest. He then took it to the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress. As high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Here we see the very clear picture of what Jesus had foretold of his return. As he comes to harvest both the righteous and the wicked. The righteous unto salvation and the wicked unto judgment. Here we see the pictures of what he taught in Matthew 13 and what Joel gives us a picture of in Joel 3 the one like a son of man has come to harvest his own and to draw the clear dividing line of all humanity. There are only two kinds of people and that is made so clear by this harvest, those who are in Christ and those who have rejected him. Two harvests are described grain and grapes. Now there are some who would argue that this is just two aspects of the same group. However, the grain harvest symbolizes the harvest of the righteous. We see that in Luke chapter 3 by the grapes being considered as the harvest of the wicked. And those grapes, the reason why that language is used is because of the nature and way in which they are cast into the winepress of God's wrath, Right, whereas grain is lasting, it can be used, and actually brings forth uh, its ability to be used and processed as it is crushed. And so you crush grain in order to use it to make flour for bread, for cooking, and things like that, right? So this is a fascinating reality. As the saints have been crushed right? as grain, they are actually able to be useful as they are taken on into glory, right? Whereas the world that was fat and full of the juices of this life Those grapes are now pressed out into the winepress of God's wrath. My friends, there is a single dividing line for all humanity. All other dividing lines are ultimately arbitrary. The only dividing line is, are you in Christ or are you apart from Him? Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Are you a, a citizen of heaven or a dweller of earth? And the only thing that separates those two is one's relationship to the Lamb. The only way to know that on that final day when the Lord swings that sickle that you will be on the right side of glory is to be in Christ by faith and faith alone. God bless.